0: You can open your Bibles to Genesis 20. Genesis 20 is where we are this morning. Before we turn there, if you know the story of Peter, the apostle, in the New Testament, he's one of the main characters of the New Testament. Peter is this unrefined, uneducated fisherman, and Jesus calls him, leave your nets come follow me i'll make you a fisher of men come come be my disciple and peter emerges as a leader of the disciples and a leader in the early church and peter's life is a constant back and forth success and failure obedience and waywardness faith and unbelief think of his life with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is walking on the water as the disciples are in the boat and Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on the water with Jesus, takes a few steps, and then he gets fearful and starts to sink. Later on, when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter answers, Then Jesus looks at Peter, says, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the good confession. You are the Christ, the son of God. So Peter sees, Peter knows. And then just a few verses later, Jesus tells Peter that as the purpose of his ministry is to come and die, be arrested and crucified to die on the cross and then on the third day rise again. So Jesus predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This can never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of the flesh, not on the things of God. On Good Friday, Jesus Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, asks Peter to pray with him, Peter falls asleep. Then when Jesus is on trial, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus three times. And then even after the the resurrection, after the ascension, when Peter is a leader in the early church, when Peter is uh, one of the people that others look to, Peter sinfully separates himself from Gentile Christians and he's rebuked by Paul in the book of Galatians. Paul tells the story of Peter separating himself from the Gentile Christians in order to uh, please the circumcision party. And Paul sees Peter doing this, and Paul confronts Peter saying, Peter, you are out of step with the truth of the gospel. This is after the ascension. And Peter, of course, comes to his senses and he returns to this right doctrine, right behavior. So Peter's life, two steps forward, one step back. Follow for a little bit, turn off the road and need to be brought back in. Each time, Jesus persists in his relationship with Peter. He teaches Peter, leads Peter, Peter forgives Peter, restores Peter, continues to call him, continues to use him. And that pattern, the pattern in Peter's life, that's more normal than abnormal. God calls us. God rescues us from our sin. God sets us on the path of following him as disciples. And on that path, We start and stop. We take three steps forward, two steps back. We get lost on side trails. Sometimes we lay down in the middle of the road like the the little boy in, in the aisle of the grocery store who's just done with mom's grocery run. That's us. But alongside us, we have this hectic, irregular, chaotic life, these unstable patterns in our own lives. Alongside us, there's the steady, stable, tireless drumbeat of God's faithfulness. God continues, God works in and through us to do what he intends. We are unstable, God is persistent. That's the story throughout Abraham's life and it's specifically the story of Genesis 20 and 21. These two chapters contain four scenes that display Abraham's start and stop, up and down, imperfect obedience and God's persistent, steady faithfulness to do what he has said. Because we're covering a lot of text this morning, I'm gonna break it up into the four scenes. So I will read each scene and draw out a few observations for each scene, and then we'll end with an attempt to tie it all together. So let's look at the first scene, which is chapter 20, verses one through 18. This is the longest scene. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you, dwell where it pleases you. as I'm reading it, you're thinking, we've already read this. That's the point. This scene is really, really similar to the scene in Genesis 12, where Abraham is sojourning in Egypt and does the same thing, tells the Pharaoh in Egypt that Sarah is his sister, not his wife. So Abraham is still this far into the story After this much work on the Lord's behalf, after the Lord has revealed himself to Abraham again and again and again, after all that God has done for Abraham, Abraham is still prone to sinfully trust in his cleverness and cunning, to use deceit and to endanger his wife. He is still prone to distrust God and his protection and provision. He is still willing to put the line of blessing at risk. God has just told Abraham, Sarah, your wife, who is at this point 90 years old, she is still able to conceive. I will give her a child and that child will be the child of blessing. And in spite of that, Abraham again puts her in this position of risk. God again, protects Abraham. Just like he did back in Genesis 12. And he protects in Abraham by rendering Abimelech impotent and warning Abimelech in a dream to give Sarah back to Abraham. So God steps in to protect Abraham. And in the text, you see that Abraham is just wrong. He's just not understanding the situation. He's not assessing his surroundings well. Abraham assumes that there is no fear of God in the pagan king Abimelech, verse 11. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And so he justifies his disobedience and thus Abraham himself is the one that's not fearing God. These people are sinners, therefore I can sin. And ironically, we've already seen in the text, verse nine, Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. So God has put the fear of him in Abimelech. And Abimelech is the one who rises early in the morning to do what God has told him in a dream. And that, we hear that about Abraham multiple times through Abraham's life. God speaks to Abraham. Abraham rises early in the morning to do what God has said. Now hear this, it's backwards. Abimelech is the one rising early in the morning to obey where Abraham is not sharing God and not obeying. Pagan Abimelech is the obedient god fearer Righteous Abraham, the prophet, is the disobedient one who disregards God. God, and then Abraham doubles down. Verse 12, Abraham gives a lame attempt to save face. So I did this because there's no fear of God here, and besides, she is my sister. She is my half-sister. So he doesn't acknowledge what he's done. He tries to justify himself, and isn't this whole scene just a picture of the bad patterns and besetting sins that we see in ourselves and in others. Abraham knows better. He knows God is trustworthy. He knows this is a bad idea. He knows that this dishonors his wife and he knows that it doesn't even work all the time. It already didn't work in Egypt. He knows that this has the potential to backfire horribly. And yet, he gets in a tight spot and he reverts to a bad solution. We all have patterns like this. Sin tendencies, addictions, coping mechanism, personality and character, flaws. And we go back to them again and again over the course of decades. I don't, I don't mean to excuse these patterns or have a fatalistic tone here. I have experienced in my own life, I'm sure many of you have, real change, real freedom and victory over some sins and patterns. So that, that happens, the Lord does that, the Lord changes us, the Lord takes sins that we persistently commit and he puts them away and we never commit those sins for the rest of our life. That happens, we should expect that in our Christian lives. It's never true that we cannot be free of a sin or a struggle or a pattern. God's grace is always greater and there is always hope and a God-given means for freedom. That, that has to be said. But it's also true that some patterns and struggles for all of us are more stubborn and difficult. There are areas in each of us where we have not advanced or grown as we, should ho- as we would hope. Attitudes and actions that have been a problem at various times in various ways for years or decades. You look at Abraham's actions here and you just shake your head. What are you doing? Are you back to this? But then you look at your actions in some areas of your life and it makes sense. You understand why Abraham is doing this. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self is hard work and we often stumble, we often revert. But God doesn't wash his hands of Abraham. As I said, yet again, he spares him and protects Sarah. And in verses 14 through 16, Abimelech goes out of his way to demonstrate his innocence and he also gets a little side swipe in at Abraham. So he gives gifts to Sarah's brother look here, Sarah, here's gifts for your brother, take him and go. And the scene ends with Abraham praying for Abimelech, as God has told him to do in his role as prophet. So in spite of his sin, in spite of his stumbling, God continues to use him. And God hears the prayers of Abraham and heals Abimelech and his household. And what, what happens at the end of chapter 20 is a precursor for what's gonna happen in 21. It says, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So we see here who opens and closes the womb. It's the Lord. And so then we turn the page to chapter 21 and we're ready for the next scene, verses one through seven. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So Isaac is now born. God closes the womb and God opens the womb. And so God miraculously opens Sarah's womb. She was barren during her childbearing years and now after menopause God opens her womb and she conceives as a 90-year-old woman. And Moses the author makes it clear that we under, makes clear what's going on here. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived at the time of which God had spoken to him. This is God doing what he has said. This is God fulfilling his promises. And so God gives Abraham this child named Isaac. And Isaac means he laughs. God has given this child making laughter for Sarah, causing others to laugh with joy and wonder when they hear of it. Remember, Abraham laughed a few chapters ago when God said, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. So Abraham laughed and then Sarah laughed when she heard God say the same thing. So Abraham laughs first, Sarah laughs second, but God laughs last. God gets the last word and he turns their scoffing and bitterness into joy and awe. So God does what he promises in verses one through two, and then in verses three and four, Abraham does what God told him to do. Names his son Isaac and circumcises him on the eighth day. And then the scene ends in verse seven with Sarah saying, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Who would have said something like this? And as we're reading it, we say, God. God is the only one who would have said this. God is the the one who has done this. Remember, he is God Almighty. He keeps covenant and steadfast love. He does all that he promises. Like we just sang, oh, let my heart learn. When you speak a word, it will come to pass. God is teaching Abraham Abraham and Sarah here. Listen to me. Listen to what I say, believe my promises. So among the chaos and dysfunction and confusion in Abraham's and Sarah's hearts, and the chaos and dysfunction and confusion in the world around them, God is calmly, consistently, effectively working out his plan. And that's true now, even in our lives the chaos and anxiety and disarray we feel is not shared by God. God is not worried this morning. God's heart is not troubled this morning. God's heart is not divided this morning. He is steady. He is in control He understands and he is pleased with how his plan is unfolding in our lives and in the world. So for us, milestones are helpful. Milestones are a good picture for us of the work that God is doing. Life is busy, it's hectic, it's messy. And so it's good to look back, it's good to look around once in a while and see these milestones. That happened for us this week the baby of our family turned five years old. So my youngest child, my baby is now a five-year-old. And I step back and I say, what, when did that happen? How is this, how is this possible? And so I, I look, I think, okay, even our youngest is now a five-year-old. And you, you step back and you look at our, our family and I think there is just a mountain of grace to look back on and thank God for Everything in our family is certainly not perfect, certainly not easy, but we can step back on a week like this when a a kid has a birthday and we can see markers of God's kindness, his provision, his trustworthiness, and all of that helps us, gives us hope to keep walking. I heard someone, I read something this week, someone said, a monument is this is how far I've gotten a milestone says, this is how far I've gotten so far, but I'm gonna keep going. And so it's good for us to have those milestones. So that's scene two, scene three. Verse eight, the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look on the death of the child." And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is, up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So when Isaac is a toddler, Abraham throws a feast. His other son, Ishmael, who by now is 15 or 16 years old, laughs, again, laughs at the boy named, he laughs. And this is a mocking laugh at Isaac. So the older son is mocking the younger son and Sarah becomes angry and tells Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. Get rid of my rival wife and her son. Abraham is displeased because of Ishmael, his son and surprisingly, God sides with Sarah. Agrees with Sarah, says yes, cast out the woman and her son confirming that Abraham should indeed listen to Sarah and remove Ishmael and Hagar from the picture. Now, what gives? This is a strange text, and the cultural context is very different, very foreign to us. In my pastoral counseling, I have never had a situation like this. This hasn't popped up yet. God told Abraham in chapter 17, that he was going to fulfill the covenant through Isaac. He was going to fulfill the covenant his way in his time through the miraculous birth of Isaac, not the natural, humanly clever and competent birth of Ishmael. God told Abraham, I will indeed bless Ishmael, but I'm going to fulfill the covenant through Isaac. And so Abraham should have considered this. He should have consented to this reality. He should have made a clear runway for the son of the promise. Which meant that he himself should have made provision for Ishmael and sent him away. Sarah is in a position to become angry and it's probably sinfully angry, but she is in this position because of Abraham's inaction because Abraham has been shuffling his feet. And we actually see this dynamic play out in the way that it should have at the end of Abraham's life. We don't think about this passage very often, it's a lesser known passage in Abraham's life, but in chapter 25, at the end of his life, after Sarah's death, Abraham takes another wife named Keturah and he has six more sons by this wife. And we're told in chapter 25 that he cares for these sons and he gives them gifts. In other words, he gives them financial help to get a good stable start with their lives, gives them these gifts and then sends them away from Isaac. And we are told that Isaac alone inherited. So if you think of Abraham as the CEO of Abraham Nomadic Enterprises, Isaac is the heir. Isaac is the one who takes over the family company. So that's what Abraham ought to have done with Ishmael. And because he doesn't, it creates a toxic explosive mess in his household and he is put in a position where he acts in haste and sends Hagar and Ishmael away with a loaf of bread and a jug of water. But again, God intervenes to provide. God hears the cries of the boy, speaks again to Hagar, says that he will take care, that he will care for Ishmael and cause Ishmael to prosper. He provides water for Hagar and the child and they begin a life away from Abraham and Isaac, the son of the promise. So God is graciously, faithfully sorting out the mess and dysfunction of Abraham's household. Then we have our final scene. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me, hereby God, that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs from the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, "'These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, "'that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. "'Therefore that place was called Beersheba, "'because there both of them swore an oath. "'So they made a covenant at Beersheba. "'Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, "'rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. "'Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba "'and called there on the name of the Lord, "'the everlasting God.'" And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. At the beginning in scene one, Abraham is afraid of Abimelech and he seeks to protect himself. Now in scene four, Abimelech is concerned about Abraham and Abimelech pursues a covenant of peace with Abraham Abimelech is treating Abraham like the greater party. Abimelech is saying, Abraham, I'm worried about you. If you attack me and my people, we're in trouble. I don't think we can win that battle. That's why his, the commander of his army is there with him. Abraham is, excuse me, Abimelech is worried about military engagement and he wants to pursue a peace treaty. God is blessing Abraham as he had said he would and people are beginning to recognize that they will find blessing through a relationship with Abraham, the man who is in covenant relationship with God. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's happening here. God is fulfilling that. And so Abraham digs a well, and plants a tree. And that's a significant action for a sojourner. You don't improve property that's not yours. You don't invest in a place if you aren't hopeful that you or your descendants will receive the dividends. Dustin Hirschberger sitting up there, he is a sojourner in Northfield. He, they, he and Anna live outside of town, 15 minutes outside of town, and their kids are often in town for activities. And so Dustin and Anna are in town with their kids, drop their kids off for an activity, and then they have some time to kill. And it's not worth driving back to their house, and so they sojourn. And they, Dustin often ends up at my house. If, if he drives by and sees me out in the yard, he'll stop and, and we'll talk for a little bit. And he is always welcome here, you're always welcome at my house, Dustin, but it would be really strange if you planted a tree in my front yard. <laughs> so when Abraham digs a well and plants a tree, he's saying something. This is a signal. Abraham is finite, he's fickle, the number of his nomadic band are relatively few, Abraham will remain a nomad wandering in and around the land of Canaan for the rest of his life. Abraham will die with very little land. The chapter ends with the comment, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham himself will never take possession of the land that God has promised. It's not going to happen. God is blessing and establishing Abraham, God is fulfilling his promises. And so Abraham responds with hope-filled worship. God has done much to fulfill his promises to Abraham and he is persuaded that God will continue to work. And so Abraham says, this land is not mine, but it will belong to my descendants. They will drink from this well. They will sit under the shade of this tree. I won't see it, but God will do it. And so he, he plants a tree and what does he do? He calls on the name of the Lord. And what does he name the Lord? What name of God does he recognize? He calls him the everlasting God. We've seen these different names given to God through Abraham's story. Abraham is saying, I'm a nomad. I don't yet live in the land. I don't yet own this land. It's not gonna happen in my lifetime. My life is short. The work that I'm doing will not be completed, but my God is an everlasting God. He will finish what he has begun. And here's a tree, because this tree is going to grow and the Lord will tend to it. And so this, this last scene sets up our conclusion. We step back and, and tie this all together. When I was in my early 20s, I was at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. John Piper was the pastor. And I remember hearing Pastor John say that the thing that discouraged him the most, the thing that was most difficult for him to handle in his life, was the slowness of his own sanctification, how slow he was to change. Pastor John would say that his ongoing sin, his ongoing selfishness, his ongoing weakness, that gave him more trouble than all of his external circumstances. And I I agreed with him then, I could resonate with that in my early 20s, And now in my late thirties, I agree with him even more. I've had difficult external circumstances, family and friends who are in trouble or in sin or have discord, walked through really messy church conflict. And, And of course I've been a part of the cultural and political upheaval that we've all experienced So I've had these difficult external circumstances, but it's the inner circumstances that are the most difficult. Why do I still respond this way? Why do I still drift toward that sin? Why do I still cope with that bad habit? Why do I still struggle to trust and obey? And we need to read stories like Abraham because this is all of us. This is how God works in all of his people. We're all over the place, but he's steady. He persists, he continues, he is faithful. Catherine read Psalm 138, and I chose that Psalm this morning because of the last verse. David says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever do not forsake the work of your hands. That's a great prayer. What's my hope? My hope is that the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. My hope is that the Lord won't forsake the work of his hands. Or this week's fighter verse, Isaiah 46, three and four, God says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth." carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. God is the one who will bless you. God is the one who will bring about his purposes. Until your life is over, God is never done with you. You have never arrived, you are not meant to coast, you are not meant to give up on and make peace with your weaknesses and your sins and your blind spots. Salvation is by grace from beginning to end. God saves us by his grace, he keeps us by his grace, he works good in and through us by his grace and he accomplishes all of his purposes by his grace. And so let's stand on those promises. Let's plant trees that will take several lifetimes to reach maturity. Let's call on the name of the everlasting God and let's take the next step of obedience. The Lord is persistent and he will fulfill his purpose for me. He will not forsake the work of his hands. Let's pray. Father, let our hearts learn that when you speak a word, it will come to pass. Lord, would you reveal in us the habits, the patterns of sin that you mean to break? Would you show us where we continue to struggle to obey, where we do not trust, where we have not set our hope fully on you, Reveal those things to us and give us grace to walk away from them. Thank you that you do not respond to our chaos and dysfunction in anger, but rather with patience. You persist. You remain steadfast. You continue to work in and through us everything that you have desired to accomplish. And so we have set our hope fully on you. In Christ we pray. Amen.